Well, amen. Uh, my name is Chris. I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. And uh, just if you've never been here before, we preach through the, through the Bible, verse by verse. And if you have been here, you know that we're in the book of Ephesians. We're working through the book of Ephesians. We're in chapter 6, and we kind of find ourselves in a little mini-series on spiritual warfare. As we read God's Word, as we read these words out of this book, I want to remind us that we believe that this is the Word of God, that this, this Word was written by man's hands through the, the leading and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so when we read these words, when James is up here reading, when anybody is reading, we are hearing from God this morning. These are His words to us. So as we, as we look this morning, uh, James read 13 through 20, we're only looking at one half of a verse this morning, one half of verse 14. And I want to remind you that what we've learned in the last few weeks, that the author of, of the book of Ephesians, his name is Paul, he's reminding the church at Ephesus and us as Christians, as the church, that spiritual warfare and the spiritual life, the spiritual struggles happen in the everyday areas of life. It's not some far off uh, field with relics and altars that were sacrifices made. It's not some third world country mission field. It's not uh, some area that in our life that we'll never see or may happen one time. What Paul is saying is that spiritual warfare and the spiritual parts of our lives happen in our everyday life. If you look back in chapter 5, he talked about wives and husbands. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's pretty ordinary husband and wife family. Children and parents is the next section. Employee, employer, master, bondservant. The everyday areas of life is the context in which Paul is writing about spiritual warfare and the subtitle of this section, the armor of God. So through God, Paul is saying that we are to put on an armor of some sort because our everyday lives aren't easy. So with that in mind, thinking about that and knowing that, we were reminded last week that the armor of God isn't something that we, uh, we actually do put on. The armor of God is the gospel, and the gospel is the armor of God. We learned last week in verse 14, it says, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. Then this week, we are having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Last week, we learned that the belt of truth was the foundation. It was the foundation of all things. Colossians 3.16 tells us that let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Not partial wisdom, not some wisdom, but all wisdom. So the belt of truth was the foundation and so now we come to the breastplate of righteousness in the second part of verse 14. And so when we're considering the breastplate of righteousness, what it is, uh, how, why do we put it on, I want to answer three questions this morning. And we're going to do it a little differently. I don't have three points. I just have three questions that I will answer as we go. And those questions are simple. Why, when, and how? Why do we put on the breastplate of righteousness? When do we put on the breastplate breastplate of righteousness, and how do we put on the breastplate of righteousness? See, if the belt of truth is the foundation, 
then the breastplate of righteousness is the anchor points of the entire structure to that foundation. See, if not properly anchored and secured, it crumbles. So we have to get this right. We must get this right this morning. And it's with that that, that I'd, I'd like to just say a word of prayer really quick. Would you guys bow with me? Father, I come to you now and ask that you would speak through me and speak to me this morning. God, if there's any error that comes from my mouth that dropped from our ears, that you would receive all glory and honor through your preached word, through your obedience of your church, of your, of your sons and your daughters, following out what we have learned this morning, what we have heard from you. Speak to us, O oh God, in Jesus' name. I, uh, I need some help from you this morning. Um, I want you to take off your Christian ears. Take off your Christian lens that you view everything through. When you hear the word righteous, what do you think of? Bill, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Righteous, dude, okay? I'm with you. I got that. I'm old enough. What else? Indignation. Indignation, okay. What else? Judgy. Judgy. All right. In our world today, I think righteousness or righteous tends to have a negative connotation to it. If you guys aren't aware, this weekend is the NBA All-Star Weekend. And if I turned it on for a few minutes, and if you see any bit of this, you see like self-righteous arrogance just dripping off of these players. And it, it I, I'm going to get on, uh, I'm going to kind of do old man on the front lawn for a moment. Uh, I miss the old guys. I miss like Michael Jordan and Magic Johnson and Larry Bird because I knew, I know that they were cool. Not really. They probably were just as bad. We just didn't get to see it because of social media and everything that we have today. But the, the, the reality is, is that, is that for the most part, righteous, when we think of the word righteous, it's a negative thing. They're arrogant, prideful. Well, the, the very definition, though, of righteousness is a positive thing. So there's two main definitions. One definition is, is to be made right or may be made straight or right from, from being crooked to be made straight, to pass inspection or be up to specs. The second definition is to be made right with or presentable for or to be pleasing. So like an, a, a relational aspect there, to be well-pleasing to someone or something. The reality this morning is that every single one of us struggle with righteousness. Every single one of us struggle. We all want to be presentable. We all struggle with the idea of looking good or feeling good. We want to be made straight to show that we have our stuff together. And we want to be well-pleasing to people, maybe even in this room this morning. Uh, Thursday was Valentine's Day, and Jamie and I have celebrated a Valentine's Day 26 years now, which is a crazy amount of time. Six years dating, 20 years marriage. And, and it, so it's been a while since I've had a first date. But here, follow me. I can, I can imagine, and you guys can imagine with me. Imagine you're going on a first date. What do you do? You, you get dressed up. Any blemishes that you have, what do you, you, you cover those blemishes, right? 
You're, you're going to cover those, those shortcomings, those things. So if your face is covered in blemishes, you, you cover them. You want to be presentable and well-pleasing to that, that date. If you've gained a few pounds, you're going to wear something that is, that is trimming and you, have, you feel confident in to be presentable. If you're an over-talker and you know who you are, if you're an over-talker and you've been told that you are, you, you compensate a little bit and you're not so much a talker on that date. Or if you're one who doesn't talk much, then maybe you're compensating and try to be a little different. Well, what about a job interview? So tell me why, you should, why I should hire you for this job. We're going to name all the positive things, right? We're not going to name the negative. We're going to hide those blemishes because we want to be presentable. We are all trying to be presentable to somebody, trying to be well-pleasing, whether it's our dates, our classmates, our teachers, our parents, our bosses. We all struggle with this. We struggle with righteousness, being well-pleasing. And what happens if that date goes bad? What happens if that interview goes bad? What, what are the immediate feelings that come up when we realize that our blemishes and our shortcomings have been revealed for, for everyone to see? What we immediately think and feel what? Shame, guilt, anxiety, because we're no longer presentable. Or we're not presentable in that moment. Have you been there? All of us struggle with being presentable or being righteous. Every time we cover ourselves to be presentable, every time we try to be well-pleasing and cover those blemishes, it leads to guilt and shame because we can't cover everything. It's a hopeless endeavor. It's, the truth is that we are all desperately afraid of being unpresentable. If you think I'm lying, what, what recurring dream do we all have? We go to school, and we get there, and we forgot to put our pants on. Something along those lines, right? We're all, like Everybody has that dream somewhere. It's like this great fear. We forgot. We're afraid to be unpresentable. Now, now this example is, 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 is in the physical, right? Like, this is the physical, but what if I told you that, that the greater and more serious struggle with righteousness is in the spiritual? Now church, think back to the Garden of Eden. Think back to Genesis. God created everything, and he created man and woman. And Adam and Eve walked in the garden in the presence of God, with God. Everything was good. Everything was, well, there was harmony. Everything was right. There was no fear. There was no shame. There was no anxiety. There was no guilt. But the devil came along and Adam and Eve believed the lie that the devil presented to Adam and Eve. And they, he said that, that they didn't need God to be presentable. That they could be presentable themselves. That they could fix and cover their own blemishes. That they could be like God. And they ate of the fruit from the tree of life, the very one thing that God told them not to do. And what happens? 
God comes and he searches them out. And what does Adam and Eve do? They immediately hide because there is now shame. There is now guilt. There is now fear. And yet God in his grace covers their shame and clothes them and makes them presentable with fig leaves. All of our shame, all of our anxiety, all of our fear and our guilt are products of sin and our sin, and they come straight from the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve. Because Adam and Eve believed the devil. They believed the lie that the devil presented them. And since then, our struggle for righteousness our struggle has been a self-centered, self-worshipping struggle in the spiritual, not the physical. Trying to be made right before a holy God. Sin has separated us from God, and we now live our lives trying to impress others, trying to be made presentable because we can't possibly reveal ourselves to anyone. No one should be able to see us. No one can see us how we really are. Do you see that? We have been created with a desire for righteousness to be made right, but the answer isn't found in this world, no matter how hard we try. And the terror of righteousness is when we try to earn God's love through the self-righteousness in itself. That is that we're trying to make ourselves presentable through things like our good works, our religious practices, and even our cultural relevance for social issues. We think all of that adds up and makes it where we present that to God and say, God, see, I am now presentable. And God says, no. Because no matter how hard we try, how hard we work, how diligent we are, there isn't a way to earn God's love or favor cannot earn it. Our sin is far too serious and more serious than we dare to believe. The answer is found only in Jesus that we sung about this morning. So when we are living for ourselves and our self-righteousness, we are striving to be like God in our practices in our morality, in our religiosity, in our sacrifices, in our, in our kindness, and it does not work. We are trying to be made presentable, to be well-pleasing to God through our deeds. And all of it, all of it is not enough. We can't make ourselves straight. We can't fix ourselves. We can't make ourselves too speck or approved or presentable no matter how much we try. This, this, this is the struggle that our world around us is living out. And it's the struggle that you and I are living out every day. This is the battle that Paul is addressing when he says the armor of God. It is in this battle that we are encouraged to put on the armor of God, to avoid the lies, the temptations, and the accusations of the devil. To not be like Adam and Eve who believed the devil. And here in our text, we have Paul saying, put on the breastplate of righteousness. 
How does this work if our righteousness isn't enough? Which brings us to the answer to our first question. Why do we put on the breastplate of righteousness? And when we put on the breastplate of righteousness because we can't fix ourselves. We just can't. The only way to be made righteous, to be made right, to be well-pleasing, presentable to God because of our sin, is to be made righteous by someone who is righteous. There lies the problem. No one on earth lived, is living, or will live can do this. None. No one. The Bible is very clear about this. The Bible tells us human beings aren't good. There's no good in us. Romans 3, 10 through 12 says, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You may say, well, that's Paul. That's Paul making it up in the New Testament. Well, what about the Old Testament? Well, he's quoting from Psalms in two different places. Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. Romans 14, 23 says, For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So hear me, this sermon is not bad news, I promise. There is only one person who lived a perfect life who is righteous, pleasing, and presentable to God, and that is himself in human form, Jesus Christ. He is the only one. And the only way for his righteousness to be given to us means that there had to be an exchange of goods. There had to be some sort of exchange because we, as I've addressed, are sinful. We can't do anything good, so we can't just all of a sudden be righteous. Something has to be done on our behalf. And that something is Jesus would have to give us His righteousness and then take on our sin and our self-righteousness. So, so, so let me put this out there for you. So you go into a bank, and you say to the bank, I've got four bags of trash, and, I, and I'd like you to take this trash and for you to give me $100,000 fair trade. Is, nobody's going to do that. That's ridiculous. But that's what Jesus did. There's just an exchange there. He gave us his righteousness, and he took on our trash, our sin. That's called imp, imp, Imputation. And it's actually called double imputation, where there's double exchange. It's as if I moved to California, and I have a First Tennessee Bank here in Tennessee. Well, there's no First Tennessee Bank in California, so I have to open an account in California. Let's say I open a Wells Fargo account. And I've got to move my money from my First Tennessee Bank into my Wells Fargo. Well, there's an exchange. Money goes from the First Tennessee to the Wells Fargo account in California. There's that exchange. Likewise, Jesus' righteousness was put into my account. And my sin was put onto Jesus. There's an exchange. That's an imputation. It's not a word we use very often. And I, and I understand. But an exchange had to happen. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 lays this out for us. For our sake, for our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. That is Jesus 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus becoming sin, us having his righteousness. That exchange. The imputed righteousness of Christ is now in all believers. All who follow Jesus. All who claim Jesus as Lord and Savior. Christians in this room. His righteousness is your righteousness. And God sees us as perfect, right, two-speck, approved, well-pleasing, and presentable because of Jesus' righteousness. The blemishes still may be there on the outside, but we have been given new hearts, new lives, new identities, and no longer are we insecure, or should be no longer insecure, no longer fearful, no longer guilt-ridden because of our self-righteousness, because we have Jesus' righteousness in us, and we are accepted. We are chosen. We are loved. We are saved, freed from the power of sin in our lives. And it's in that truth that we can stand confidently in the finished work of Jesus. There is no need to feel shame. There is no need to feel guilt for screwing up, for not being presentable. You are accepted. You are presentable and well-pleasing to God. Do you see how scandalous and beautiful this is? Do you see that? To put on the breastplate of righteousness. Put on the finished work of Jesus. Accept it. Know it. Believe it. But not only is it in the imputed righteousness, it is also the imparted righteousness or the practical righteousness. And this is the righteousness that we live out. So when we read Scripture that says, love your God above everything else, and love your neighbor as yourself, or we say, be holy, when we read those things, this is what that is. That living out the Christian life, being obedient and followers of Jesus The, it's the, the, the living out that we, that we live out in fear and trembling. The Bible tells us how we are to live, how are we to act, how we are to act, how we are to love one another. And all of that are byproducts of the imputed righteousness, the righteousness of Christ in us. So we are changed by the imputed righteousness so that we can live out the imparted righteousness among the world. What we're talking about is the gospel. We're talking about the gospel. The gospel tells us that we aren't good enough, that nothing can, that we can do can earn God's favor or be presentable, but that's good news. That's good news because the gospel goes on to tell us that God knows, He knows us, He knows our sin, and through Jesus He accepts us, receives us, and saves us by faith. Do you see that? Romans 3, 21 verse through 25 says, But now, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law of the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. To the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation for his blood to be received by faith. See, 
Jesus, his righteousness is our righteousness, and he saves us. We are justified by faith, not by anything we have done, but what completely, totally what God has done through Jesus Christ. Religion tells us that we need to be better, do more, work harder to be presentable and acceptable to God. If we do our best, if we work hard enough, then he will love us. But Paul in Philippians 3 says the, other, the opposite. And starting in verse 4, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, that is, if anyone has confidence in what they have done and accomplished, I have more, says Paul, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as the righteousness under the law, blameless. He's done it all. He's got it all. He is a five-star athlete. Everything he has, he's got it. He has done it. There are no blemishes according to his religious resume. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. What Paul is saying is he, all the religious things that he's done, all his self-righteousness, every bit of his resume, he says he counts it as rubbish, a steaming pile of poop. That's fact. That's what he is giving his resume a grade there. And he surpasses all of that to the knowledge and understanding that the righteousness he has through God by faith is so much better, is far better. The gospel says that we are accepted, that we are loved, that we are treasured no matter what we have done or will do. This is the breastplate of righteousness that we are to put on. Do you see that? Now, when I, when, when I say armor and breastplate of righteousness, I know you guys have a picture in your head. Um, last week, Brad had a picture of gladiators, so I couldn't put gladiator back up. And my mind didn't go past gladiator, so I don't have a picture for you. Uh, but you're looking at a, a, a you know, metal, usually metal, she, um, Form to the body from shoulder or neck, bottom of the neck, down to the waist at some level, and then there's a back piece of the same. If you remember, Gladiator had like two lions on his Spanish, Spanish horses, not lions, but horses, I think it was. Um, anyway, this, is, this was the armor. This, this armor, uh, uh, modern day armor, would be a you know, bulletproof vest that Matt puts on every day when he goes into work. This, this armor protects the organs of the body. It protects the organs that are, that are vital to, to life. So how does this metaphor of putting on armor apply to our lives? Well, in the Bible, there are two main areas that the Bible speaks of when it's talking about the inside of a man or a woman, human. You got the heart, and then you got the bowels or the rest of the man. The heart is known as the inner man. 
This was, this was the, the, what the man or, or woman was made of. This, was the, uh, this is what made them tick. Their thoughts. This is like their conscience. And then the emotions were, were thought to be more in the gut or the bowels of a person. So think about when our emotions get loose. We just go crazy. What, where do we feel that? Right here, right? We get butterflies. We get knots in our stomach. That's, that's where it comes from. So it's, it's no wonder that we're to put on a piece of armor that protects these things. Our conscience, our thoughts, the mind, and our emotions. The last couple of weeks, Brad's helped us understand that the, the devil attacks us through accusations and temptations. And with a bullseye on the, the mind and on our emotions. So think for a moment, the last time you were overwhelmed or anxious, maybe it was this morning, maybe it was last week, how short were you to your family? How much doubt crept in into your mind? How much shame or guilt rose, showed, showed its face? Are you, are you tempted to, to believe that you don't need Jesus that you don't need Jesus to be presentable or well-pleasing. These are, these are what the devil is sending your way, the, the temptations. Are you tempted to believe that you don't need Jesus? Are you, are you tempted to believe that, or to, to doubt his goodness and his love, his acceptance? This shows itself in, in living in a constant cycle of fear and anxiety and shame and guilt. Do you know people like that? Maybe, maybe, maybe you're like that. Never measuring up. Never feeling cared for. Feeling like the entire world, including God, is against you. Do you are you tempted to, to dismiss the seriousness of your sin? Shows itself in a repeated, practiced, and worst of all, unrepentant heart. Do you see how the temptations of the devil attacks the mind? Those temptations are there. What about the accusations? Do you hear him saying to you, you're not good enough for Jesus. Jesus would never love you. You've done too much. And then you start saying to yourself, I can never be loved like that. Maybe the accusations are you can make yourself presentable. You can make yourself righteous. And you start saying, I don't need Jesus. I don't need this Christian thing. Or maybe an accusation is you haven't done anything wrong. There's nothing you've done wrong. It shows itself when you hear stuff like, you're not like that guy. And you start saying, I'm not that bad. I haven't killed anyone. <laughs> Do you see how easy it is to fall into the devil's schemes? Our minds and emotions and emotions must be protected. These temptations and accusations either magnify the lie that we are good enough or minimize the need that we have for Him. That's all these accusations and temptations do. They magnify the lie that we are good enough or they minimize the need that we have for Him. That's it. There's the playbook. We are in a battle. 
The war has already been won by Jesus on the cross where he defeated, defeated sin and death. We know this for fact. Like putting on the breastplate of righteousness, we know that it's going to protect us. We know that for fact. But as long as we live in this world and we are fighting for holiness and faithfulness and obedience, we are going to be in this battle. And in a battle, you, you wear the proper armor, the proper protection, and you take the proper precautions and, the, and preparations for it. If I told you this morning that when you walk outside, you're going to walk into gunfire, first of all, would you go? No. Second of all, if you had to go, you'd put on something, right? And yet... There's a risk for us every day in our everyday lives to be injured by the enemy's lies and in many cases injure those closest to us with collateral damage by believing in these accusations and giving in to these temptations. This is the battle that we are in and yet we don't take the warnings of God's word. God's words to us, we do not take these warnings seriously and we don't prepare ourselves for battle we must be ready at all times why so that we can stand firm so that we can stand firm verse 13 in Ephesians 6 so that we can stand firm we are in a battle. We must be ready. This is the call that Paul is telling us this morning. This is the call that God is speaking to you this morning. To be ready, be prepared, and stand firm. So the answer to our second question then is, when do we put on the breastplate of righteousness? All the time. Every time we slip, every time we doubt, all the time, anytime you are breathing, in your comings and your goings, it is in the everyday, ordinary stuff of life, all the time. So then how do we put on the breastplate of righteousness? A person who has a regular practice of putting on the breastplate of righteousness is a person of humility. They are a person who is confident in the finished work of Jesus and in their new identity. They're confident in those two things so that life's curveballs, life's struggles, life's sufferings don't cripple their faith, but in the opposite occurs, strengthens their faith. Do you know anyone like this? Are you like this? A person whose life is marked, this is a person whose life is marked by service and love, not out of obligation or duty, but out of pleasure, joy, and sincerity. Do you know anyone like that? Are you striving to be like that? One way to put on the breastplate of righteousness is to know God more. Do you know God more? Are you experiencing God? Are you encountering Him daily? If you've been here many times, you know where I'm headed. Do you spend time with God in His Word? Mercy Hill is set up where we've, we've, we've 
2019 started doing the CBR journal, the Community Bible Reading Journal, where we are in God's Word daily, encountering God, experiencing God through His readings, and then we share in community what we have learned and what God has done in us and through us. We're learning who God is. We're meeting with Him, and we're encountering Him in our daily lives. Do you know God? Are you spending time with Him? Another way is to, is to pay attention. Pay attention to your feelings and emotions. Now, you can't always trust your feelings, and I, I'm a good example of that. But they can be a barometer of your heart. They can tell you that, that what's going on in, inside of you, in your heart. What you're feeling is usually a byproduct of what you're believing or not believing about the gospel. Lastly, putting on the breastplate of righteousness can look like slowing down a little bit. Slowing down and examining your heart throughout the day. When, when's the last time you slowed down and checked in on your heart? When's the last time you said, you know, I've been anxious lately. Why is that? If you're, if you're a guy in here, that's, it's probably been like 15 years would be my guess, give or take a couple. We don't do that. We're, we're, we're not taught to do that. But yet, if our emotions are a byproduct of what's happening in our heart, we can learn a lot. In the last couple of weeks, Brad has shown us the four portions of a day. What if you took these four portions of a day, and after each portion, you just did a quick examination of your, of your heart and of your life? Morning, 6 a.m. to noon. Afternoon, noon to 6. Evening, 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. And then the night watch is 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. What if you just, you just took five minutes and said, what's going on in here? You've got three questions, three things to look at after each one, and it doesn't take long. What are the cares? What cares do I have? Are there any worries or anxieties from the previous portion that are still harassing my thoughts and emotions. Cast them upon the Lord. What carnalities do I have? Are there any temptations from the previous portion still loitering in me, being where, where they don't belong? Seek the Lord's provision to resist and overcome. And then thirdly, consolations. What are just the good gifts that God has done in that last portion of your life? That last four hours, you give or take. That last... Time. What is good gifts? You wake up and you had a great night of sleep. That is a gift. God, you gave me a good night's sleep. See, this, this battle, this battle is real. We're not talking about some out there idea. This battle is real in the life that you and I are living right now. And the gospel is the only protection we have and all that we need. So I have one last question with a couple sub-questions. Are you in this fight? Examine yourself. Are you in this fight? Are you a soldier of God? Or are you living for yourself? 
Are you trying to cover all your blemishes, all your shortcomings, and afraid to show others your real self? Are you afraid that you won't be accepted? In Christ Jesus, you can be accepted. He loves you. He has a plan for you. And He has made a way for you to be loved, forgiven, accepted, and made right all by the work of Jesus on the cross. And all you have to do is ask Him. All you have to do is ask Him. Last, I'm going to read Isaiah 59. And then we're going to move into the Lord's Supper where we celebrate the work of Jesus on the cross. We've done it through song, we've done it through the preached word, and we're going to do it through the Lord's table. Isaiah 59 says, Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. It's bleak. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation. And his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. Jesus has reached down with his arm and brought salvation. He has given you his righteousness. He has reached down this morning and he has set this table for you and I to partake in. The bread representing his body and the juice representing his blood that was poured out for you on the cross where he took on your sin and gave you his righteousness. This is what Jesus has done and we celebrate that this morning through bread and juice. The Lord's Supper. He has reached down for you and for me and brought salvation to us. I'm going to pray. The band's going to come up. And when I'm, when I'm done praying, you guys feel, feel the freedom to come and receive the Lord's Supper. Tear off a portion of the bread, dip it in the juice, and celebrate what Jesus has done for you on the cross. That there was double imputation. His righteousness was given to you and he took on your sin. Celebrate that this morning. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this day and this time. God, I pray that we are obedient to your word. That we do as you say and that we treasure the truths of the gospel. That we would not believe that we can make ourselves right that we can make ourselves pleasing, but God, that we would trust you completely and that we would come to you no matter how bad we think we are. You know it and you know us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.